the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this installment of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on this Monday. Again, follow us at danproftshow.com and on social media at danproftshow as well as at danproft. And uh, we begin on uh, this program by starting to focus in on the presidential election a little bit more, particularly with the conventions just uh, weeks in the offing, even though, of course, they're going to be very different than they've been in the past. What is it exactly uh, both candidates would do were they elected, Trump reelected, Biden elected? And I think we have a pretty good idea on President Trump, both based on what he's done, what he said he would do as a candidate, that he's either done or largely uh, acted in furtherance of. Uh, Joe Biden is a little bit more slippery to get a handle on because he was he's somebody that's, you know, sort of been a political chameleon to survive 40 years inside the Beltway, being whoever he has to be, given the uh, political winds of the time. And so what are the political winds of the time in his party? Well, uh, they're pretty strongly blowing in a Marxist direction. And so what would a Joe Biden presidency mean? Could he resist the uh, pressure and the energy of the socialist base of the Democrat Party? Uh, I had this conversation last week with Ted Van Dyke, who's been a Democrat Party operative for 40 years. And he said Joe Biden should stand up and condemn the violence in America's cities, but he won't. Joe Biden should stand up for free thinking and free speaking in a free America, should uh, uh, express opposition, if you will, to the cancel culture, but he won't because of exactly what I was describing, the pressure coming from that socialist base, the Jacobin base of the party. And so that's what he won't do. What would he do? For more on the answer to that question, we're pleased to join, be joined by Matthew Cottonetti again. He's the founding editor at the uh, Free Beacon and a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And he has a cover story in Spectator USA that tries to answer the question, what will Biden do, both as a candidate and potentially as a president? Matthew, thank, for, thank you for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. So that, that fundamental question um, in terms of what he will do uh, seems to be, you know, who will he be? pushed by, pressured by, who will he listen to? And uh, a lot of people put uh, uh, significant importance on this manifesto that he and Bernie Sanders uh, sort of co-released. Is that an indication of who will be pushing Joe Biden and who he'll be responding to? Right. I think it is. I'm not sure the Sanders people got everything they wanted. Uh, out of these uh, unity uh, documents, uh, but they got some things. And um, there's no question that unlike most um, candidates, uh, after accepting or winning the nomination of his party, Biden has moved 
outward. He hasn't moved toward the center. He's he's moved leftward, um, and that's that's very atypical. But uh, this is a very atypical election. I think a lot of the unity documents will be tossed aside uh, if Joe Biden wins and if the Democrats have uh, control of Congress. And um, what they wrote this summer uh, will not necessarily reflect the reality of legislating next year if they win. And uh, with respect to who he picks, I mean, that seems to me from most of the choices being bandied about uh, who he picks to be his running mate that uh, is forthcoming within the week. Uh, maybe with the exception of Val Demings from Florida, you're talking about uh, a, a woman of the left is most likely. Yeah, and I mean, even Val Demings has a pretty um, liberal uh, left-wing uh, voting record um, in Congress. Uh, though, of course, she has that uh, career history as a police officer, which presents some, you know, some complications in the radical mood of the Democratic Party today. Um, I think Biden, when he's looking for the VP, is trying to find someone who he can work with as a partner um, and less as someone who will uh, kind of dictate the, you know, the ideological agenda uh, of his administration. Um, and so it, it's a it's a complicated ranking system. I actually think one reason they delayed the um, announcement is he doesn't know what to do. And mm-hmm. I think one, one reason he doesn't know what to do is because he he trapped himself in this corner of having to pick a woman. And now with the racial politics in America, the feeling immense pressure to pick a black woman. Um, And uh, unfortunately for Biden, there there are just very few choices there um, who have the, you know, kind of the national profile, um, the experience, the uh, vetting. um, And so I'm not sure he knows what to do. Uh, And it's coming down to this, you know, uh, about five or six people, it seems. Well, and and he, he has to worry about another woman, too, and that's Nancy Pelosi, if she's still House Speaker, uh, Chuck Schumer uh, as the Senate Minority Leader, but perhaps Senate Majority Leader, we'll see. Um, but he has to worry about them regardless in terms of um, uh, sources of power themselves trying to push the agenda and reflecting the uh, policy agendas of their base caucuses, the, the base in their caucuses, which is, uh, again, sort of the neo-Marxist set. Yeah, uh, though, you know, it's funny uh, right now, Schumer is uh, pushing to repeal the uh, cap on the uh, state and local tax de- deduction that was included in the 2017 Republican bill uh, tax bill. And so in a way, Schumer's, you know, he wants a tax cut for the rich <laughs> because that, that well, right. Um, That's not inconsistent, that cap, though. Yeah, that cap completely. um uh, hurt the, the people in California and uh, and New York. Um, and I'm surprised, actually, Republicans aren't making more of an issue of this. Uh, but um, but you're absolutely right to suggest that um, uh, Congress is a player here. I mean, and this is this is the case with any administration. No president gets everything he wants. And uh, when I was kind of thinking about this in, in preparation for that article in the Spectator USA, you mentioned I, what I found most interesting is presidents always screw up health care. So uh, Bill Clinton, of course, uh, was completely defeated on the health care issue. Barack Obama didn't get all he wanted. I mean, we've, we had we got Obamacare and we have to suffer through it, but um, it wasn't all he wanted. And of course, President Trump as well was unable to um, uh, to repeal and replace Obamacare because of the, uh, the last minute change of uh, heart of Senator John McCain. So um, there is one issue I think that you know Biden will have to be very wary because even what he's 
promises or pledges in the campaign may not actually come to fruition uh, once Congress gets its hands on it. Do you uh, get the sense that um, that uh, the Biden people are as exuberant about their current station in the race as the press corps is that's you know rooting for him and trying to uh, lift him to to victory? That, uh, you know, they believe they're in a very strong position and he can go with somebody maybe a little bit more left than he would otherwise be comfortable with because they're in such a strong position. Or do you think they realize that um, there is a lot that will come and go before November 3rd? Well, the thing about Biden's inner inner circle to remember is that they're almost all as old as he is. So (laughs) they've been around politics for a long time. They're also heavily, um, you know, they're insiders, they're lobbyists. Uh, there are people who are kind of travel, you know, th- that intersection between politics and money. Um, so they're not necessarily the, the Jacobin base, uh, like you described. Um, I think I think Biden has to be very careful for this reason. He, he has this lead. His lead, by the way, if you've been if you've been following the real clear shrinking. Uh, average is has been shrinking. Right. So it seemed like he reached a peak in July amidst all the madness of that month. Um, but now. You know, it's it's starting to go back, and, and especially these latest uh, battleground polls that came out of CNBC last week. This race is still uh, a contest between Trump and um, Biden in the battlegrounds, and of course that that's how Trump won in 2016. It wasn't by winning the popular vote. So, so it's very much a race, and we haven't entered the critical decisions that Biden will make uh, that I think will affect the race. There will be three. There will be the vice presidential selection. There will be his convention address. Uh, and there will be the debates. And the way that they're approaching the vice presidential selection seems to me to indicate a campaign that is very wary of losing its advantage. <laughs> they don't want to make any mistakes. And so that's why they've delayed, they, they continually delay this announcement of the VP uh, pick. And I think they're going to delay it right up until the weekend before the convention, to be honest, because I mean, it's not as though the the team is going to go campaign anywhere. You know, right. there is no campaigning. So why not just wait until the very last minute uh, and then go head it right into the, uh, the convention? Hmm. So there's the old saying about that prevent defense, right? Um, yeah, I- exactly. Well, that's what he's been playing all year. It's, a, it's pretty. It's something else to watch. And I think it's very frustrating to President Trump because President Trump wants to have some type of uh, engagement and um and fight between them, and, and Biden is just in his basement. He is Matthew Continetti, founding editor at the Free Beacon and a resident fellow at uh, the American Enterprise Institute. I will uh, tweet out at Dan Prof show his uh, excellent piece, What Will Biden Do from Spectator USA. Matthew, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Take care. Show.com. Welcome back to the show and um, time to time on the program. I like to take a bit of a, a breath and uh, wax uh, philosophical, do a little bit, uh, a little bit of uh, reflection smashed in between electoral politics as we are here between uh, our conversation with Matt Matthew Continetti and our forthcoming conversation with Representative Ken Buck from Colorado you want to stay tuned for after the break. 
And uh, for that reflection, this piece from Malcolm Gladwell, you know, Malcolm Gladwell, the author of bestsellers like Tipping Point and um, Blink and Outliers. Uh, Well, about seven or eight years ago, he wrote a book called David and Goliath. And um, there's a reprint of a op-ed he wrote in Relevant Magazine that was posted uh, just a few days ago. And uh, I thought it's really timely, given where American culture is at. He talks about uh, meeting a woman, really a couple, in Winnipeg, the Dirksons, Wilma and Cliff Dirksen. Uh, He went to meet them because 30 years before, her teenage daughter Candace had disappeared on her way home from school. The city had launched, the city of Winnipeg, launched the largest manhunt in its history. A week after that manhunt, Candace's body was found in a hut a quarter mile from the Dirksons' home. Uh, Wilma and her husband, Cliff, called into the local police station, told the news. Following a a news conference, they were asked by a reporter, how do you feel about whoever did this to Candace? And uh, Cliff Dirksen said, we would like to know who the person or persons are so we could share, hopefully, a love that seems to be missing in these people's lives. His wife, Wilma Dirksen, our main concern was to find Candace. We found her. I can't say at this point I forgive the person, uh, the stress on at this point. We have all done something dreadful in our lives or have felt the urge to. Malcolm Gladwell writes about this interaction with the Dirksons. I, I wanted to know the reason he visited them, where the Dirksons found the strength to say those things in that moment. A sexual predator had kidnapped and murdered their daughter, and Cliff Dirksen could talk about sharing his love with the killer and Wilma could stand up and say, we've all done something dreadful in our lives or have felt the urge to where did two people find the power to forgive in a moment like that? It uh, seemed like a relevant question to him in his research for David and Goliath and Gladwell's a great storyteller because the moral of the David and Goliath duel is about our notions of where power and strength reside and that our preconceptions about where power and strength reside are false. For example, Goliath seemed formidable, but there are all kinds of hints in the biblical text, Gladwell points out, that he wasn't everything he seemed. Why did he need to be escorted to the valley floor by an attendant? Why did it take him so long to clue into the fact that David was clearly not attending to fight him with swords? There the even speculation among medical experts that Goliath had been suffering from a condition that uh, causes abnormal growth, but often has the side effect of restricted sight. What if Goliath had to be led to the valley floor and took so long to respond to David because he could only see a few feet in front of him? What if the very thing that made him appear so large and formidable, in other words, was also the cause of his greatest vulnerability? And Gladwell, in uh, working up this book, was trying to collect stories like this that illustrated the point, and he collected many if you've read the book. Uh, he, going back to the Dirksons, uh, they, were, uh, they are Mennonites, and... Uh, Wilma Dirksen said the whole Mennonite philosophy is that we forgive and move on. It's not always been easy. It took more than 20 years for the police in Winnipeg to track down Candace's killer. In the beginning, uh, Cliff Dirksen was considered by some in the police force as a suspect. The weight of that suspicion fell heavily on the Dirksons. Wilma told me she had wrestled with her anger and desire for retribution. They weren't heroes or saints, writes Gladwell, but something in their tradition and faith made it possible for the Dirksons to do something heroic and saintly. When uh, he told a friend about his visit to the Dirksons, his friend sent him a quotation from the first book of Samuel. 
it so perfectly captured what I realized David and Goliath was about, uh, that it uh, was uh, inscribed in the first page of Gladwell's book, the passage from uh, chapter 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look at on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks in the heart. He tells another story of Christians in uh, Les Chambaux uh, area of France during World War II. Um, again, dealing with weapons of the spirit. This, uh, for many centuries, had been the home to dissident Protestant groups, principally the Huguenots. And during the Nazi occupation of France, uh, Les Chambaux became a central pocket of resistance. The uh, local Huguenot pastor there on the Sunday after France fell to the Germans preached a sermon in which he said, if the Germans made the townsfolk of Les Chambaux do anything they consider contrary to the, do- to the gospel, the town wasn't going to go along. So the uh, children of the town refused to give the fascist salute each morning as the new government had decreed they must. The occupation rulers required teachers to sign an oath of loyalty to the state. But, um, the pastor ran the school and instructed staff not to do so. Before long, Jewish refugees heard of this area of France and began showing up looking for help. The pastor and the townspeople took them in, fed them, and hid them, uh, as well as uh, helping them to get across the border in open defiance of Nazi law. Once, a group of students actually presented him with a letter that stated uh, plainly and honestly the town's opposition to the anti-Jewish policies of the occupation, that the he was a, a government official. We feel obligated to tell you there are among us a certain number of Jews, the letter stated, but we make no distinction between Jews and non-Jews. It is contrary to the gospel teaching. If our comrades, whose only fault is to be born in another religion, receive the order to let themselves be deported or even examined, they would disobey the order received and we would try to hide them as best we could. And so again, uh, Gladwell contemplates the question, where do they find the strength? And ultimately, uh, I think more so the Dirksons the interaction with the Dirksons, then the story of Les Chambeaux brought Gladwell back to uh, brought back in relationship with Christ. Um, he uh, he said one of the things that he underestimated was the power of the spirit. Uh, he, he wrote about these stories. What I understand now is that I was one of those who did not appreciate the weapons of the spirit. I've always been someone attracted to the quantifiable and the physical. I hate to admit it, but I don't think I would have been able to do what the Huguenots did in Les Chambeaux. I would have counted up the number of soldiers and guns in each side and concluded it was too dangerous. I've always believed in God. I grasped the logic of Christian faith. What I had a hard time seeing is God's power. And um, that changed. Uh, He said, I put that sentence in past tense because of something that happened to him when he sat in Wilma Dirksen's garden, talking about her faith and how they reacted to the murder of her daughter the way they did. It was one thing to read in a history book about people empowered by their fate, but it's quite another to meet an otherwise very ordinary person in the backyard of a very ordinary house who has managed to do something utterly extraordinary. And uh, it's such a powerful piece. It uh, recalls this conversation we had with uh, David Devil from uh, Imagine a Conservative last week, uh, the piece that he wrote about we need less heroes and we need more civilizers. Uh, you can... Um, look at the Dirksons and see their heroic, maybe, faith, uh, heroic level of faith. But what they really are is civilizers. And I think that's what uh, 
Devil was getting at, and that's in part at least what Gladwell was getting at. This is Dan. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. If you thought uh, the histrionics at the House Judiciary Committee hearing featuring Attorney General Barr sitting there to be screamed at were um, were really quite something to behold, then um, you'll really enjoy the room temperature offerings of House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn on with uh, Dana Bash over the weekend on CNN State of the Union. He had this to say about President Trump in defense of his previous comparison of Trump to Adolf Hitler. Do you really think Donald Trump is comparable to Adolf Hitler? What I said starting about two and a half, maybe three years ago after one of his State of the Unions, that I feel very strongly that this man has taken on a strong arm tactics. And I feel very strongly that he is Mussolini, Putin is Hitler. I said that back then, and I believe that. She is Mussolini, Putin is Hitler, and Trump is, I don't know. Who's Trump in this uh, this animal farm-esque metaphor that uh, Clyburn is using? But he's still speaking of the three gentlemen in the same sentence, isn't he? There's an excellent piece by Anthony Esselin, who only writes excellent pieces. Uh, if he's he's an academic with whom, if, if you're not familiar with, with, I should say, you should become familiar with him. He um, calls to mind uh, how you can, in discerning how you can determine if somebody has fascism in their heart, Elio Vittorni's novel, Conversations in Sicily, as well as Solson Heenson's Cancer Ward. And he uh, reminds us what Benito Mussolini said of fascism, although didn't define it as such, but his approach to his dictatorship. Quote, everything within the state, nothing outside the state, nothing against the state. In other words, everything must be swallowed up in politics. Nothing must be permitted to enjoy a non-political or pre-political or beyond political existence. Not even language, not even the names of towns and villages could escape the hand of fascist politics in in Mussolini's Italy. Uh, Who does that sound like today in America? Everything swallowed up in politics. Nothing must be permitted to enjoy non-political or pre-political or beyond political existence, not even the language, not even names of towns or villages or sports teams. He goes on to uh, offer a bit of a checklist. How can you tell if you have the soul of a fascist? Here, Vitterini and Solson Heenson provide some instruction. Do you watch others to find fault? Do you seek occasion for enmity? Do you believe the personal is the political? Do you speak evil of people behind their backs? Do you enjoy perhaps too much being part of a political movement? Do you believe that political urgency absolves you of ordinary human duties, such as the duty to protect your enemy's good name or the duty to be loyal to a friend? Uh, I would add, how about the how about the the, the, uh, duty to be honest? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's famous incantation. I don't have to be technically correct because I'm morally correct. Do you expose other people to opprobrium? Do you act as if every decent person must believe as you and your comrades believe and say what you say? Do you enjoy having other people live under a reign of terror where one false step can cost them their livelihood? Boy, these uh, questions should be put to a whole host of people, starting with the members of Congress, starting with uh, many of those Democrat socialists on the House Judiciary Committee, I'd I'd suggest. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Congressman Ken Buck, Republican from Colorado. 
member of the House Judiciary and House Foreign Affairs Committees, author of the upcoming book, Capital of Freedom. Representative Buck, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. That was uh, some performance your colleagues put on with Attorney General Barr. Uh, I understand, and I think most people who've watched these committees before, understand committee hearings are mostly an occasion for speechifying from the members of Congress. But um, uh, it wasn't it wasn't so much the speechifying. It was the hysterics, wasn't it? Well, I think it was uh, sad. I think what really happened was the Democrats didn't want to hear the answer. So they wanted to give a speech and they wanted to uh, make sure that their time ran out and didn't give the attorney general an opportunity to be heard on on the issues they were concerned about. And, and the attorney general, uh, when he did explain, uh, I, I thought uh, really was a class act and presented a strong case for the actions that he took. And frankly, I think that there was a lot of sympathy for the attorney general going in and being treated the way he was and acting the way he did. I think there was a clear winner in that hearing, and it was Attorney General Barr. Yeah, probably not the guy trying to prevent him from taking a five-minute bathroom break. That's that's probably not a good position to take. Well, clearly, Chairman Nadler was not a sympathetic figure, and he hasn't been a sympathetic figure, whether it's been in the impeachment hearings or other parts of the judiciary history in the last year and a half. But I I do think that the the, the bar time period as attorney general um, has been a very clear and straightforward uh, time period. You mentioned fascism and, and the uh really if there is a, a group uh, this attorney general has done his very best to make sure we are protecting uh, federal property for example and making sure that federal agents are out there protecting property when the, when the mayors of these large cities will not do that when we come back with republican congressman ken buck of colorado i want to talk about republicans taking a, a stronger stance in response to some of the histrionics and demagoguery around COVID-19, including but not limited to the uh, Phase 4 relief package that's pending. More with Ken Buckman. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. With Representative Ken Buck, Republican from Colorado, and uh, Representative, does there need to be a more full-throated response by Republicans to some of the uh, overheated rhetoric coming from Democrats about the GOP handling and the president's handling of COVID-19 on the uh, from the economic side to the public health side? They're doing a good job of smearing Republicans, and Republicans aren't doing a particularly good job of locking down exactly where Democrats are in terms of what they would do, what they want to do right now, and broadcasting that. Yeah, and I think we always have a problem as Republicans of having access to the same liberal media that the Democrats have. So their message, obviously wrong. They, the lead in the economic shutdown in this country, the lead in the response to this COVID-19 pandemic is are, are the governors of, of America. President Trump um, has 
uh, led the way in terms of funding for businesses that are shut down, unemployment benefits, research for vaccines and other medical healthcare issues. The bottom line, when you look at the, the shutdowns of the economy, it, it happens from governors. And to suggest that President Trump is responsible for any death, it's, it's just really poor politics. There's a state rep in uh, Illinois, in Chicago, who's uh, introduced the uh, notion of uh, stopping history classes this fall until and unless there is more representation of the accomplishments of minority and women in the history books, I guess, or in history instruction. How how do you respond to that approach? Well, I think we've been uh, we've seen that movement now for 40, 50 years, and I think we have excellent representation in our history books, and uh, we absolutely should celebrate accomplishments by all Americans, and uh, we should also understand the flaws that our our founders and other leaders have had in this country, but it doesn't mean we should deny history. We sh- we need to learn from our history, but to sell to not celebrate the fact that this country is the greatest country on earth, the most prosperous country, the freest country is really sad because people won't understand that our freedoms going forward are based on the the great accomplishments of our historical figures. I guess uh, your book, Capital of Freedom, uh, probably won't make it onto uh, the many. Uh... Uh, uh, syllabuses, uh, syllabi, will it, do you expect? I mean, to me, it seems like, uh, you know, this is a a good example of Rory's on defense. I mean, eliminate history class. Chicago is like ground zero for the 1619 uh, narrative uh, fiction, uh, historical fiction about this country's history as part of their curriculum, in addition to uh, using Howard Zinn and other left-wing tracks as history books for these history courses. In fact, conservatives have ceded the entirety of K through 12 education, with the exception of a few private school operations and charter school operations in this country. It's, it's this is a rush to the left is you're not a, enough of a cultural Marxist. Uh, so all of the cultural Marxists in charge of the Chicago public school system and the Illinois school system, for example. And it's just an example because you could replicate it in almost every other state. They they already control everything. And now the the uh, the running to daylight that politicians on the left see is to go further than that. It's not far enough. And uh, and and I just again, the response from conservatives and people who understand the importance of the foundations of this country, the importance of civic education, the importance of a classical liberal education at both the high school, that, but, but the K through 12 as well as collegiate level. I just don't think the response is uh, meets the urgency of the moment. Do you? I, I think that uh, there certainly could be a stronger response. I think that uh, there could be a more balanced presentation in the media because, they're, frankly, uh, the media is not interested in, in learning from our history. But the, the one thing that I talk about in the book that I think is uh, so interesting is that all around us we see the evidence of, of history. And yet to go where the, the Marxists, the socialists want to take us, they have to deny what they see all around them. If you walk in the Capitol, uh, you see all these uh, statues and uh, you hear the stories of, of what happened in the Capitol, things that make us great. Uh, you know, where Abraham Lincoln sat as, as a member of the House, the fundamental freedoms that, that we have that, frankly, the Marxists are trying to go backwards with. They're, they're trying to revert to a, a government control system, which is exactly what we revolted from. And it's the only reason why the Marxists feel we have to deny our history is so that they can go back and gain more control. 
You're a, a former colleague, now White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, saying that uh, the two sides, meaning the Trump administration, Senate Republicans and congressional Democrats, not close on a COVID-19 phase four relief package, in part because of the disagreement over how much enhanced unemployment benefits should be provided, what the, the number is going to be. Uh, wh- where are you on uh, all matters COVID-19 relief related? Well, I sponsored a bill called the Getting Americans Back to Work Act, which makes sure that we don't pay anyone more in unemployment benefits than they would make if they were working. Uh, This idea that we should pay people $600 more to not work uh, is a disincentive to work. And and I have uh, many uh, businesses in Colorado, who have uh, business leaders who have talked to me about the fact that they're having trouble getting people back to work. So if we're uh, at, uh, intending to get our economy up and running again, we don't do that by disincentivizing work. And, and in Colorado, uh, Jared Polis has been given credit as one of the few Democrat governors to actually move for reopening sort of around the same time that a, a lot of Republican governors that are being roundly criticized moved. Um, What's your assessment of uh, your home state governor's response to the outbreak? Well, I think I think there was an overreaction as there was in so many places. The reality in Colorado was we never got to the point of using, you know, 70, 80 percent of the uh, ventilators in Colorado. And yet the state government was ordering thousands and thousands more uh, ventilators. And and, uh, the same is true uh, with putting people back to work. We People here want to go back to work, and they are being held back from that in a lot of ways. We're going to see a lot of uh, restaurants and other retail businesses go out of business uh, as a result of this. The the clear uh, strategy, I think, that's been employed in other countries that is successful is to protect those who are at risk and to let those who are not at risk go back to work. Um, If they get this disease, make sure that we are testing and make sure that we are supporting them, but you, you can't shut down the economy for much longer and be able to have the resources we need to fight this disease. He is Congressman Ken Buck, Republican from Colorado, member of House Judiciary and House Foreign Affairs Committees, and author of the upcoming book, which releases tomorrow, Capital of Freedom. Representative Buck, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. I'm sorry, but I'm just thinking of the This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. As uh, We were discussing with Ken Buck a uh, statement made by House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn, Democrat from South Carolina. It's one thing uh, to compare Trump to dictators. It's another thing to have no clue what's going on in this country, or at least pretend to have no clue. Listen to uh, Jim Clyburn on the topic of Bible burners in Portland. I don't know anything about burning Bibles. That's another thing that's out there. People, everybody's got their own religion. Burning a Bible doesn't do anything about burning down a um, federal building. I don't know if I've seen, maybe you all know something I don't know, what federal building has been under threat. 
who attempted to burn in a federal building? Uh, Jim Clyburn on Fox Friends. What federal building has been under threat? Who attempted to burn down any federal building? He doesn't uh, recognize any violence going on in Portland or Seattle, other cities around the country. Very consistent with uh, Jerry Nadler, the human colostomy bag, who uh, argued that Antifa doesn't exist. It's just a figment of the D.C. Republicans' imagination, apparently. It will come as a shock then to Jim Clyburn that on Friday, before he appeared on Fox and Friends, 18-year-old Gabrielle Agard Berryhill was making his first appearance in federal court. He is uh, facing federal arson charges for throwing an explosive device at the Mark Hatfield U.S. Courthouse federal building. It will come as a shock to Jim Clyburn as well that U.S. Attorney in Seattle, Brian Moran, had uh, requested federal support to protect the William Kenzo Nakamura courthouse, a federal building, uh, for exactly the same reason, because it was under assault by anarchists and vandals. Huh. Jim Clyburn doesn't know anything about that, which is really, this is purposeful, right? This is Soviet in nature. Don't believe your eyes. Believe what the government is telling you. Um, you may want to believe what some Louis, uh, excuse me, some Louisville business owners are telling you that Black Lives Matter is uh, engaged in mafia tactics, trying to shake down businesses of Louisville for protection money, essentially. The um, BLM affiliate in Louisville demanding, uh, posting its uh, list of demands for businesses, private businesses. 23% of staff in front of house needs to be black or indigenous persons of color. 23% of inventory needs to be from retailers who are owned by black or uh, persons or or indigenous persons of color. Regular donations to black or indigenous persons of color run organizations a dress code policy that does not discriminate against such individuals. In addition, an option option to give 1.5% of revenues from the business to a local black nonprofit or organization in lieu of purchasing a minimum of 23% of the business inventory from black retailers. And uh, in the repercussions for noncompliance portion of the letter, it includes things like invasive reclamation, placement of booths, tables outside your establishment where competing black proprietors will offer items comparable to those offered by you. One uh, person of color, Fernando Martinez, who's a restaurant owner serving uh, that ser- a restaurant that serves Cuban cuisine, described these as mafia tactics. And there comes a time in life you have to make a stand. and You really have to prove your convictions and what you believe. And he said, all good people need to denounce this. How can you justify injustice with more injustice? Well, there's the conundrum of Black Lives Matter as well as the Democrat Socialist Party these days. This is Dan Proft. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Again, follow DanProftShow.com. Uh, last hour, I uh, spoke with Congressman Ken Buck, Republican from Colorado, and one of the questions I asked in the context of the cancel culture and um, all the effort to uh, eliminate dissent in this country, to indoctrinate rather than educate, getting into this position now where we just have competing signs as the way to communicate with one another rather than having a conversation because so few people can stand disagreement on the merits. So I was talking about this with Ken Buck in the context of his new book and, and in the context of his 
views on the cancel culture as well. And I asked him about this state legislator in Illinois who's making national news over the weekend. His name is LaShawn Ford. He's a friend of mine, uh, known him for a long time. He's a rep from the west side of the city, some tough neighborhoods. And he's introduced this idea that we should cancel all history classes and just teach civics in Illinois schools, so how government works rather than the history of America, for example, until and unless history is reflective of what he says is the real history of America, uh, warts and all, across all races, across all time periods, dating back to 1776, I would say probably dating back to 1619, he would say. And so because this is probably going to be coming to a state or big city near you, the idea of rewriting history a la the 69th Project, not good enough, uh, halt all history instruction, even though it's mostly from textbooks written by men and women of the left, halt it all until we get a fresh look at it and a fresh rewrite of it. Is that uh, dangerous? Would that be more gaslighting and indoctrination? Or could it potentially be an opportunity for a more even-handed treatment of history than even has provided has been provided to this date. And I'm not talking about as exemplified by the 1619 Project. I'm talking about as not exemplified. The good example to the 1619 Project's bad example of historical fiction, as its founder, Nicole Hannah-Jones, has essentially conceded. So for that discussion, pleased to be joined and to introduce to a larger audience, State Representative LaShawn Ford, Democrat from the West Side of Chicago. You know, it's always good to talk to you, and we've always had uh, enjoyable conversations, even when we disagree, which is why I can phrase this question. I feel I can phrase this <laughs> yeah. question in the following way. Uh, LaShawn, have you lost your mind? First, I think we have to make sure that we don't take a knee-jerk reaction to the proposal, mm-hmm. and that is that we have to be critical thinkers when we respond to what I'm asking for. The simple ask is that we teach accurate history. And we know that the history that's being taught in the schools throughout the country in Illinois is not inclusive of the contributions of all people. And it is not a real accounting of what white men were like, what white women were like, what black people were like in its full totality. So specifically, so give me a history manual that's used in a lot of schools and what is missing or what is included that is counterfactual. One, we just stick with the fact with blacks and what I know about the teaching of black history in um, Illinois schools and across the country is that the only thing that people recognize about black people is that they were slaves and that you have to do a special pullout to talk about contributions that black people made to this country. Black people were here in America before America became America. We were brought here enslaved from 1619. And when you open the history books, you will only see black people contributions being enslaved, not the people that built the country. Let's talk about the history teaching of Christopher Columbus. And let's talk about the history um, teaching of the Jewish community. Let's talk about all that women have done in this country, but yet they are not recognized for their contributions and the history books. You know, what's interesting is actually um, you're persuading me. You know why is because what you're really complaining about is the white supremacy taught by Democrats in charge of K through 12 education in Chicago and Illinois, aren't you? you know, Be- because, yes. yes, right. Absolutely. And you know what? 
we know that there's something wrong with the history teaching in this country when we have a senator. I think Cotton says that he don't believe we should spend money on teaching about the 1619 history of the 1619 trade. He says that slavery was a necessary evil. Who in the hell would say that? I don't I don't want to get into the semantics of that, but he was recounting what the how the founders described it. He also uh, he exactly. Also, exactly. I, I, I know That's why we got to eliminate this damn history, because well, well, it was white men that made the accounting for it. And all we're saying is let's be inclusive in the accounting yeah. of history in this country. OK, so t- so two things. One is this 1619. You can that's fine. You want to teach a class of world history that goes back to the 1600s or that specifically focuses on an aspect of history, meaning slavery in the world. Absolutely fine. What he's talking about is the 1619 Project, which, oh, by the way, its uh, founder, the Pulitzer Prize winning Nicole Hannah-Jones, has essentially conceded as historical fiction. It's storytelling. It's not history. Uh, so, right. that, so that's a problem as a, as a, as, uh, in terms of how it's presented. You can present it if you present it accurately. If you present it as factual, then you run into problems, as she's run into problems with history academics at the collegiate level from across the political spectrum. That's number one. Number two... With respect to this idea that it is Democrats and the teachers unions and the mayors and the school boards that are in charge of the curriculum in K through 12. And and most of the history books are of the Howard Zinn variety, including the People's History of the United States, that it's all from a left perspective. If you want to tell me that your point in this is to teach blacks, whites and everybody else in between that the history of black Americans is one of accomplishment and success and rising above the odds and rising above pernicious institutions like slavery and Jim Crow, you know, sign me on because what the education is, is in victimology and promoting victimology. So why don't, why don't we teach about a black wall street in Tulsa? Why just teach about the massacre there? Why don't we teach about business ownership in Chicago uh, under Jim Crow uh, in the beginnings of the 20th century? Why don't we teach about the intact black family during the ravages of, of slavery and Jim Crow. Let's talk. If you want to talk about those things, well, then, then sign me up because that's exactly what's missing from the conversation. Yeah, we don't have a real we don't have a real perspective about the contributions of not just blacks, but even white people, Latinos. The Latinx community is not represented in our history the right way. It's an inaccurate accounting of history, and we should not be paying publishers to issue books that are not accurate. And that's what we've been doing. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit confused because on the one hand, you're agreeing with me. But on the other hand, it seems like this is all a, 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 a lot of complaining about uh, how blacks and Latinos and women and gays are being treated or not treated in history. Um, and, uh, and and again, I mean, I'll, I'll go through a list of the of, of the top uh, eight or nine history books that are used in K through 12 school systems, public school systems around the country. These, these are all left. Um, so the, this, this is all the identitarian left that are writing the history books for the most part that kids uh, are being exposed to, yeah. I would argue, indoctrinated to. So so is your point to reduce the level of identitarian politics and race identity politics or is it to increase it? My point is to educate accurately, making sure that people understand the history, whether you like it or not. You, you know, whether you like the way white men were, whether you like the way black men were, whether you like the way people treated the Jewish community, but we need to know the truth. You know, we need to know the truth about uh, the founding fathers. History is not supposed to be fiction. You know, we have to make sure that we 
teach factual hmm. information to our children. Otherwise, we're miseducating. And many people think that this is just about teaching black history. If you don't know black people, the truth about black people, then then that makes you uneducated. You know, who is going to make the determination on what constitutes the complete, as objective as is possible, accounting for history for a particular period of time? You're you're tasking the Illinois State Board of Education to do it. You know, these. No, absolutely not. Or who are you, who are you, who are you, who are you tasking to do it? Who are you tasking to do it? That, that, that's right. So the, the board has to commit commission a group of all people to come together to put together a better accounting. So here's the thing. The question that you ask is important because now we have to say who wrote the history books that we're reading now. And we know that they were written by a small group of white men, period. White liberal men. Yeah. White, white liberal men, you know, and I'm with you. I mean, Democrat, Republican. Yesterday we had Democrats. We had Republicans. We had we had Asians, like Latinos, we had LGBTQ+, we had the Jewish community, rabbis there, saying that they want to be a part of writing a more accurate accounting of history for children to learn. I mean, no one would pay for something and expect to get something, and they're not really getting what they paid for. <laughs> everyone takes a, everyone wants a refund when we they're do. getting duped. He is State Representative Representative LaShawn Ford, a Democrat from the West Side. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Listen to podcasts of the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back to the show. All right, taking a bit of a cleansing breath from our conversation with Chicago legislator LaShawn Ford about uh, eliminating history classes in Illinois until and unless the history books are more accurate in their reflection of American history, warts and all. Uh, maybe he is a good example of what uh, Kate Hyde writes about at The Spectator recently. Uh, this interesting point, which is essentially that the uh, Democrat Socialist Party is far healthier with another four years of Trump than it is with Trump as a one-termer. What exactly was she getting to? Well, let's ask her. We're pleased to be joined now by Kate Hyde, contributor to Spectator USA and former news director of American Military News. Kate, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being here. Uh, so why, why would, uh, in their heart of hearts, uh, secretly away from prying eyes and ears, some on the left be uh, be wishing for another four years of Trump. Well, it's funny, right, because they go out there and they yell every day about how Trump is the worst thing to ever happen to this to this country. Right. It's like it might as well be on the Mayan calendar of the end of the world is the day that Donald Trump got elected <laughs> as president of the United States. But the reality is when we're living in this new, strange era of victimization is the best and victimization is a form of currency and the more currency you have the more you can spend it and and virtue signal and feel like you're you know you're on the right side of history these democrats are really quite blessed to have trump at the forefront of of being their number one enemy they absolutely love 
to complain about everything that he does. And Trump is the number one guy to to put them in that in that position of victim. So another four years of Trump and, and that would give us time to set up autonomous zones in you know every city in America with more than 100,000 population. Absolutely. And another four years of Trump, really what it does is it inoculates the Democrats from having to take responsibility for themselves. Right. I mean, we see it right now with uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York. He did a horrific job taking care of covid um, during this whole pandemic with the whole mishap with the nursing homes. I'm sure you're all familiar with it. And what does he do? He just he he sits back. He points a finger at Trump and says, it wasn't me. It was him. Not only was it him, look at what a horrible human being he is. Look at how he's making me the victim. This is the worst. He's the bad guy. If they don't have Trump, if they have another Democrat in the in the as a president, they can no longer point up to the to the people higher than them and complain. Right now, they need Trump as that pinnacle guy to say, no matter what we do, no matter the responsibilities we have, it's all on him. Well, the other thing it does, too, it, it expedites the cannibalization of uh, the left by the more radically left. Right. So so you can't uh, you can't just uh, run a rhetorical cover for uh, vandals in the streets of major cities. Now you actually have to deal with them. You can't run cover for uh, those trying to uh, uh, restart America anew. Day zero is today because now you've got to deal in the real world. You have the reins of power. And so this is where the Jacobins come for you uh, per the Harper's letter a couple weeks ago. If we were actually ever to be in charge, then we've got to deal with these people. We can't just... Uh, we can't, you know, we 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 can't just be uh, uh, cons- uh, uh, conspiring to help them quietly. Absolutely, that's exactly it. And they pretend like they they hate that they're not in control. But what do they do? Like I said, right? They point to Trump, and just like you said, that allows them to not have to deal with the crazies on their side, the craziness that's happening in Portland, in Seattle. They can totally just default to, again, they have someone higher up that's Trump. And Trump is the perfect guy for it, right? Because these progressives, these leftists, torture, and that's what I was writing about at the spectator, really just that the, uh, what happened in 2016 left the Democrats just absolutely reeling. What happened? We thought we had control of this. We thought we were in power. Everything was good. And it didn't happen. And what happened was to try to deal with it, they kind of created a new form of populism, right? And this populism to go against the elite that is Trump and the MAGA world and all that uh, was really just deeply steeped in masochism, you know, that it was like um, we the only thing we can do is complain about that guy. And we love all the reasons that we have to complain about that guy. So what these people do is with every tweet that Trump tweets out, I mean, just the other day when he was tweeting about delaying the election, no one cares to ask. If he has the power to delay the election, it really doesn't matter. All they can do now is point and say, look at what this guy's doing. Look at what he's saying. He's the biggest enemy we've ever had. And we can, you know, continue to, to ignore everything we have going on. And, and that's where I say Trump is the best person for that because Trump's out there no holds barred. So it's this, it's this sick, twisted relationship that everyone really loves. Trump knows exactly what he's doing. He loves doing it. And the Democrats love it. They love the torture of the watching the tweets, listening to what he's saying. You know, it's someone on a diet that goes to the mall and walks by Annie Ann's knowing they can't have any. But <laughs> like, they just love that temptation of like, oh, I, what can I, you know, 
Well, and, and, and we can't leave out the D.C. press corps in this, too. I mean, uh, without Trump, then the New York Times and uh, the their associated organs with different uh, banners, but the, the same the same uh, narrative disposition, as well as uh, the Fredo Cuomo's and the Don Lamones and the Jeff Zuckers of the world, uh, not to mention everybody at MSNBC. They, they've got to now pick sides between, uh, you know, the street vandals and uh, the uh, uh, the neo-Marxists in public office. That's exactly it. You know, it's a really sick position to be in to want to side with Antifa because they're not Trump, right? Like that's that's pretty pretty bad position to be in. And um, like you said, really, these the media, just like the Democrats that are you know in elected office, the media loves the fact that Donald Trump is in. This makes money for them, right? They um, they absolutely, you know, journalism kind of took a break. Uh, during the years of Obama, right? They kind of sat back. Now they've been really going to work, and I absolutely love that. I think you should be critical of everyone in office. I think that's what journalism is. But what's happening is they're getting kind of a free pass to to um, interject their their opinions into it, right? And we see this constantly with the with the big names like Acosta. Why is Acosta popular right now? It's because he's fighting Trump and making himself the victim. Um, and that torture that he pretends to go, you know, he reports on something Trump does and then says, this is the worst thing that ever happens. I can't believe it. I'm <laughs> astonished. He's selling a book. He's selling his brand. And, and, you know, what happens is media, they know if it bleeds, it leads. And that's why they treat every single word that Trump says like it's, you know, a dagger to the heart because it's like, oh, my gosh, this is this is devastation beyond anything. So they love it. They they need this to keep going. What are they going to do? They're going to take another vacation if Trump leaves and not do any work and not be, you know, jazzy. They're obviously not going to cover any riots. Kate Hyde, exactly. contributor to Spectator USA, former news director of American Military News. Kate, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Sports and politics, and sports and politics, and sports and politics, and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance, arrogance, ignorance, and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. Yeah, and uh, Judd Garrett writing at uh, his blog, Objectivity is the Objective. Mixing of sports and politics is potentially dangerous. Uh, well, more so than just in terms of losing fans. He recalls the um, the Munich Olympics where... Uh, of course, uh, the Palestinian terrorist group uh, took nine Israeli athletes, killing two of them, um, where sports is supposed to be a haven from uh, geopolitics or even parochial politics. 
it's also uh, should be protected as one of the last meritocracies in the Western world. But that's not what's happening, and uh, he's written extensively about it. He has some background in this, too, as a former running back for the, the hated Dallas Cowboys, at least by me, because I'm a Steelers fan. Although I'm increasingly, I can't be a fan of any sports, including all the teams which I, for, for, whom, for which I share uh, season tickets in Chicago. It's a struggle, and the Blackhawks didn't make it any easier by participating in that ridiculous pregame ritual on Saturday afternoon where you had uh, the Minnesota Wild defenseman, a man who is Filipino and German, come out in Black Lives Matter garb and preach about Black Lives Matter and then kneel for the national anthem, U.S. national anthem, while everyone stood for the Canadian national anthem. Now, all the hockey players stood for both anthems. Okay, fine. But you still have this guy kneeling before the national anthem. He's a Canadian national, plays for the Minnesota Wild, while uh, while standing for the Canadian national anthem. And what it conveyed to me is this position that is absolutely political and fact-free, that racist institutions in the past and racism today are uniquely American. Do you want to have a little discussion of Canadian history on the topic or the history of the Western world on the topic, frankly, the history of the world on the topic. Meanwhile, some of these same neo-Marxist ignoramuses are uh, running cover for China, where uh, the the enterprises with whom they have contracts outside of their chosen sport, like Nike, are, are literally using slave labor today. So you're railing against racist institutions like slavery in this country from hundreds of years ago while you're running cover for Chinese communists and corporations that are in bed with them to use slave labor to brew shoes to ship over here? Help me suss that out. Uh, Mike Pompeo was on with Maria Bartiromo over the weekend on Fox Business, and he was he talked specifically about that, about the sanctions they're imposing on Chinese companies, as well as uh, the push, the pressure they're putting on American companies to reevaluate their supply chains, particularly if they're involved in complicity with slave labor. Uh, we've begun to impose uh, sanctions on the individuals and businesses involved there. This most recent set of sanctions put out by the Department of Treasury uh, will put uh, the businesses operating there on notice. They've got to change their behavior. They've got to stop using slave labor. They've got to stop participating in these systems that have been connected to forced sterilizations, forced abortions. These are, these are terrible, terrible things that are taking place there. And we're going to impose real costs on those businesses. This company is involved in the cotton trade and so has deep connectivity to Western businesses, including those in the United States. And we've been very clear. We've told U.S. businesses to take a real deep look into their supply chain. I don't think companies, uh, some brand names here in America, want to be connected to what's taking place there. I don't know. Somebody better put that question to Phil Knight. Uh, as well as the NBA, the ESPN story about the sports camps there and uh, the abuse of players that is going on under the umbrella of the NBA and the NBA playing Captain Ronald. Oh, my gosh. Well, what's going on in China? Oh, that's terrible. We're going to have to look into that. For more on this, uh, we're joined by the aforesaid Judd Garrett. Judd, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so what about Nike and uh, some of and Nike and the NBA in particular and the cover they run for Chinese communists per the, the Nike story out last week about using slave labor and the ESPN of, of all outlets expose on those uh, sports camps in China? It's extremely hypocritical. I go back to last November with Daryl Morey, general manager of the Houston Rockets, when he aligned himself with the protest in Hong Kong, 
and free Hong Kong. I support what they're doing. And those are people who just want the basic human rights that we have in America. And he got smacked down by LeBron James and by the NBA for just tweeting something, I stand with Hong Kong. So LeBron James and the NBA are allowed to protest oppression in America. The people in China who are oppressed a hundred times worse than we've ever been charged of doing, they can't protest. And the only reason why they're doing that is because China, hundreds of million dollars are given to the NBA from China. So they're protecting their paycheck and they're protecting that oppression that's going on you know, to enrich themselves. I mean, the hypocrisy it is absolutely ridiculous. When we come back with Judd Garrett, I want to talk about uh, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell's 180 on Kaepernick and uh, the silence on kneeling before the anthem that was uh, protested by some in the NFL, including NFL owners, that uh, is no more. More with Judd Garrett when we return. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show we're back with judd garrett and i want to get uh, to your take on roger goodell's 180 on kaepernick and uh, you know kneeling protesting the flag the anthem and the NFL owner's silence to that 180. At least uh, Jerry Jones and uh, maybe it was the Carolina Panthers owner as well uh, spoke out against kneeling and, and sort of that disrespect in that moment. Uh, now nobody is saying anything except for Mike Ditka. You know, I, I was with the Cowboys in 2016 when the whole kneeling started, and they took it in the, in the bank account. There was a lot of NFL fans who turned the TV off, who weren't buying the merchandise, who weren't going to the games. I think there was a 15% drop in, 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 in all that that was going on uh, in 2016. And, and that's why a lot of the owners are, were speaking out. And right now, it is, it, it is a little puzzling why you know, a lot of these owners who, who are very supportive of, of the national anthem and the American flag have not been, have not been speaking out. I mean, you know, Dick is a guy, you know, I, I coach with Mike Dick there. Uh, back in the in the late '90s, at the same, so so I know him fairly well. I mean, he's a guy that's going to speak his mind and, and say say it like it is. I mean, he's a guy from Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. I mean, his, his dad was a coal miner. He's worked for everything he's gotten, and, and he believes in America, so he's going to stand up for America. And, and I think it's a shame that a lot of these other people who have benefited so greatly from America are so willing to disrespect the flag disrespect the national anthem and and when did when did we get to coaches like greg popovich and steve kerr uh opining ignorantly and hypocritically steve kerr got caught with his pants down too about china just like the the rest of the nba back when after maury's tweet oh gosh i i didn't know about uh about china so much i i've got a brother-in-law who's a, a scholar in chinese studies i'm learning more about china from him oh really you didn't know about the chinese communists and repression so then just shut up about everything because you apparently don't read anything but um but but it the coaches like popovich and steve kerr and and the the coaches like tom landry or john wooden uh even our, our bulls coach like jerry Sl- they're just where are these guys and where are these guys not just to to just stay in their lane, but also to tell guys like Popovich and John Kerr, you know, why don't you just uh, focus on basketball? Because you're embarrassing me in the league with your nonsense. 
Yeah, I mean, and that, to me, that's what it, that's what it comes down to. I mean, um, when you go to a game and you turn on the game, you want to see the game. You want to see see two teams competing. That's what the game is all about. There's a purity to that. And when you keep injecting politics into it, it just it distorts the game. It destroys the game. People people are walking away from the game. They're turning off the TV. They're, they're not watching. And the other thing, if you're going to speak out politically, you better make sure that you know all your I's are dotted and your T's are crossed because you know you're going to be exposed to your hypocrisy very easily as soon as when you become very outspoken. And and like you said, Steve Kerr, Greg Popovich, LeBron James, all those guys, you know, they're getting exposed for the hypocrisy. I, I know not uh, all, all these guys in the locker rooms are you know, dumb dumbs and, uh, they're not on board with this. I mean, Jonathan Isaac made this uh, stand over the weekend in the, in the, for the magic, which was, and, and then defended himself, had to defend himself to the press corps about whether or not as a black guy, he thought black lives matter. I mean, this is how silly it is. Um, but, uh, uh, any, any reference his faith and it was, it was very thoughtful and very good. I, I, maybe that's an example for others to follow speaking out, but, but w- what do you sense? And from your, contacts and your friendships is happening in locker rooms across sport. Do you sense any sort of rebellion bubbling up that I, I don't want to be a part of this? Well, I, I think, I think it's becoming harder and harder to, to, to push back on this. I mean, you can see what happened to Drew Brees. I mean, yeah. uh, a few months ago, yeah. Drew Brees stood up and said, you know, I, I don't understand why anybody wouldn't stand up for the flag. And he got, he got smacked down pretty quickly. And then he changed his, he changed his tune you know, very quickly, I think it's harder and harder to, to, to push back. And, and, and the example you brought up, I mean, you know, the guy the guy stands for the flag, and then he's the one that's being grilled by the media, not not the ones that are that are out there disrespecting the United States and disrespecting the flag. Well, um, so how does this redound to sports at the collegiate level, the high school level, the pre-high school level? I mean, do you see this as really threatening to poison sports? I, I think it is. I mean, I think what happens at the higher levels does trickle down into college and high school and, and all that. And, 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 and I, I can recall back in 2016 when this was all going on that there were a number of high school players who were, who were kneeling for the, for the national anthem before their games. And, and, and to me, you know, it, it just, like I've been, like I've been saying, this is a lot of propaganda there's a lot of hypocrisy that's going on, and all that you're doing, it, it's poisoning the sport, it's poisoning the purity of the sport, and, and it's driving people away. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, if they continue, these leagues uh, continue on the track they're on, maybe the NFL won't have to worry about losing so much money because it'll already be built into what's going to happen uh, with the flight of fans supporting. And, and it's not just you know fans in the stands. It's not just the gate that they're going to lose. They're going to lose on the merchandising. They're going to lose, as you were mentioning, on people turning off their TV sets. I mean, I'm as diehard a sports fan as there is, and I and I'm just I'm sort of done with it all. Unfortunately, you have to throw the the people that are standing up, like Jonathan Isaac, and providing good examples in with all the bad examples. But I, I just don't want to be preached to by people who don't know what they're talking to talking about. If I want to be preached to, I'm going to go to somebody who does know what they're talking about on Sundays. But I'm not going to listen to Greg Popovich. And I think a lot of people are just done with that. It's going to be very sad for sports too. It's it makes our makes life less interesting, unfortunately. 
Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's a sentiment that I've heard from a lot of people that they're walking away from it, they're turning off off the TV, and they're done with it. And it's a shame because you know, sports should be this great unifying thing, and it's become a very divisive thing, and that's the shame of the whole thing. Judd Garrett, writer of the blog Objectivity is the Objective, former Dallas Cowboys running back and coach. Uh, Judd Garrett, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. Welcome back to the show. In the first hour, uh, spoke with uh, Colorado Republican Congressman Ken Buck and uh, pushed him on the response from Republicans, including the Trump administration, as it pertains to the over the top, quote unquote, human sacrifice accusations of Democrat socialists when it comes to the administration's COVID-19 response and suggested like, it just needs to be more aggressive. It needs to be more relentless. It needs to provide more information and education in terms of making an argument. It needs to present side by side what Trump did and what Biden said throughout, from the beginning of the pandemic to the present. Well, there's a new uh, Trump campaign ad that uh, just does, does just that, at least the last portion of what I said. On January 30th, the World Health Organization declared the Chinese coronavirus a global health emergency. President Trump acted immediately, announcing new travel restrictions on China. Starting at 5 p.m. Eastern on Sunday, the U.S. will temporarily ban foreign nationals who pose a risk of transmitting the coronavirus from entering the country. Democrats and the media attacked President Trump for these restrictions. But President Trump was right. Every expert agrees now, looking back, that the president's call to restrict that travel from China pretty early on was a good decision. But Joe Biden, he got it wrong. The very same day the China travel restrictions were announced, Biden attacked President Trump for acting irrationally. This is no time for Donald Trump's record of hysteria and xenophobia, hysterical xenophobia, to, uh, and fear-mongering to lead the way instead of science. Days before Joe Biden's top coronavirus advisor, Ron Klain, got it wrong, too. Would you ban Chinese travelers from arriving in the United States? I wouldn't. I think that's premature. Biden tweeted the same attack about xenophobia again and again and again. Yeah, it's good to remind people, put uh, them in their own words, as well as President Trump in his own. But I'll tell you what, I, as we played on Friday... Tony Fauci's testimony before Congress on Friday provided a ready-made commercial as well. Use somebody they've elevated to oracle status, they being the left. Tony Fauci, because of the perceived tension between the president and him on some of these decisions, use this testimony from Fauci. Just wrap this up in a nice commercial. I know when you go back to the beginning of this, the China ban 
was very heavily discussed. Were you involved in working with President Trump on deciding to ban flights from China? Yes, sir. I was. Do you agree with that decision? I do. Do you think that decision saved lives, Dr. Fauci? Yes, I do. Do you agree with the decision uh, when ultimately we saw spread in Europe and then the president recommended that we extend that to Europe? Did you participate in that discussion? I was actively involved in that discussion, sir. Do you agree with that decision? Yes, I do. Do you think that decision saved lives? Yes, I do. Eventually, then, we saw the United Kingdom have an outbreak, and there had to be a tough decision made. Do we extend that to the United Kingdom? Were you part of that decision? I was. And do you agree with that decision as well? I do. Did that decision save lives? Yes, it did. Yeah. And uh, would this be a great campaign commercial for Trump in terms of what actually happened and the decisions that were actually made, the good decisions by the president and compared to some of the catastrophic decisions made by particular governors that are being celebrated by the media like Andrew Cuomo? Yes, it would. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Prof Show. One of the individuals on Creep Show Joe's VP shortlist is Congresswoman Karen Bass from California, a former Speaker of the House in California, the California Assembly. Yeah, she got a lot of attention this weekend because of... Uh, Remarks that were unearthed in which he praised Fidel Castro. She was on Meet the Press with uh, that uh, yapping little terrier, Chuck Todd, and was asked about uh, those uh, comments in the positive direction of Castro, which, of course, she recast. You said you were expressing condolences to the Cuban people. There's many people who believe that the, the Castro regime in general was keeping them confined was was stifling their freedom that it it actually getting rid of Castro might have been a celebration to some yeah maybe and in the island I think it's slightly different because you know they certainly didn't have the freedom and wouldn't have the freedom to celebrate that so I think that it is just very important the way the uh, Obama administration had opened up relations with Cuba I think the best way to bring about change on the island is for us to have closer relations with the country that is 90 miles away. Just very quickly, I'm curious of your reaction. You were called Communist Karen yesterday by the Trump campaign, <laughs> and Senator Marco Rubio said you would be the, the, the most essentially implied that there was nobody who was ever been considered for the vice presidency that was seen as so much of a ca- Castro sympathizer. How do you react? Well, one, don't consider myself a Castro sympathizer. Number two, I, my position on Cuba is really no different than the position of the uh, Obama administration. Indeed. As a matter of fact, I was honored to go to Cuba with President Obama. I went to Cuba with Secretary Kerry when we raised the flag. So there really isn't anything different. And then, frankly, I believe the Republicans have decided to brand the entire Democratic Party as socialists and communists. Well, if the brand fits, you're right. She's not much, so much a Castro sympathizer. She's more of a Chavez Maduro sympathizer. And as to her contention that uh, normalizing relations with Cuba would be the best way to uh, liberate the people in Cuba who are oppressed, um, how's that going? 
has Cuba developed into a peaceful, pluralist society, unbeknownst to me? Have I missed it? But it speaks to the extremist nature of the Democrat Socialist Party. It's uh, reflected in the manifesto that Biden and and Bolshevik Bernie cobbled together. So the whole it's a sort of rather ironic, but it's not because what did we say at the outset when it came down to Biden and Bernie? We can't have Bernie. Why can't we have Bernie? Because we can't sell this through the front door. We have Biden who can sell it through the back door uh, or who can sell who can sell himself through the front door. And then we bring in Bernie policies through the back door. That's the point. You can't sell it straight away. It has to be uh, there has to be an element of subterfuge. And so you have the Joe Biden parroting some moderate stances, uh, having the courage to say violence is bad and people who commit violence should be arrested and prosecuted, which is a revolutionary statement in the Democrat Socialist Party these days. That's what he said last week in Wilmington. Meanwhile, you have the real energy of the Democrat Socialist Party providing political cover for those same rioters and vandals, just to name but one example. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Adam Brandon. He is a contributor to Washington Examiner's Beltway Confidential blog, president and CEO of FreedomWorks as well. Adam, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. It's uh, very important to, with Biden as the nominee. We take a very close look at what really happened back in the, in, the, in the good old days of the Obama administration, particularly when we're starting to look at the economy. Right. And uh, so this is a, a piece of it that you write about in the Washington Examiner and recounting, uh, even though the recovery was slow during the Obama years, uh, the only reason we had one at all was because of the energy sector that Biden wants to kill. So roughly speaking, under eight years of Obama, this is just your back of the your, your back of the envelope math here. But you could roughly say the economy was growing at about two percent per year. This is what people like Paul Krugman called the new normal two percent. Uh, remember, under Trump, we were pushing over three percent at times. So the problem when you start looking at the Obama record is that of that two percent, half of it was directly attributed to fracking, directly attributed to domestic oil and gas production in the United States. So without that, you, Obama would have grown it under one percent. Think of that. And uh, here's another statistic for you. Seventy percent of all jobs created in the Obama administration, that is seven zero, seventy percent came from one state, and that was Texas. That's where we want to go back to, where all the prosperity is focal centralized in just one state. But if you kill fracking, in which Biden is saying he wants to phrase out fossil fuels by, I think, 2035, uh, think what that does to our economy. I mean, it's just stunning. And uh, also just going back to the energy sector, generally speaking, we, we finally achieved energy appendant, uh, independence under this president. And now with this uh, Green New Deal gambit in whatever form it would ultimately take, uh, we want to move back to energy dependence. We want to move back to being dependent on our enemies for uh, oil supply, a fossil fuel supply that helps churn our economy. That seems to be nonsensical policy. People forget we are the world's number one energy producer in the world right now. And Biden's saying we want to take that to zero. We want to be back behind the line behind like Aruba and Argentina. That is that's kind of insanity when you think about it. When you are number one in something, you go to want to go to number zero. And uh, if, if, under his energy policy uh, proposals, that's exactly what we would do. And here's the thing about it. If he's the president, he's not going to be able to avoid being complicit in the AOC socialist Spice Girl ban fossil fuels nonsense. Uh, a, a, an example of what is will will re, will be revisited, what will reintroduce itself whether uh, COVID subsides or not. But at some point, 
uh, what is happening to Michael Schellenberger right now, who's been an environmentalist for three decades. He uh, wrote this new book. We've had him on the show, Apocalypse Never. He offered this uh, really detailed apology, of all things, for uh, his contribution to climate alarmism over the last 20 years. And he he went in great detail about all of the, the misdirections and the false claims that are made by the radical climate apocalyptic folks. And now he's uh, being called a white supremacist for all of his scholarship on the topic. I mean, this is a guy, again, 30 years of work product in addition to uh, years of columns at Forbes and books and so on and so forth. He's just going to be marginalized as a white supremacist. So my point is to say this crowd will not tolerate dissent, including from the president of the United States. If his name's Joe Biden, he will be brought to heel. No, he will. And it, again, I just am stunned. Think of what the energy sector does for the United States. Those people who are driving to work each day, uh, they know the gal. You know, when they know when the gallon of gas is two dollars and fifty a gallon, and they know when it's three dollars and fifty a gallon, and they'll know when it's five fifty a gallon. What that means for choices they can make for their family, uh, the jobs that get created through all of this, uh, the fact that we're not—you mentioned alluded to this earlier—we're not sending hundreds of billions of dollars a year to people who don't like us around the world. Uh, it's just a stunning thing to do, think that, okay, our proposal is going to be to tear this up. And if you are concerned about carbon emissions and global warming, probably the smartest thing you can do is use natural gas as a transition fuel. And we've got you know 50 years of the stuff in the ground right now here in the United States. It's, it's smart across. It so, makes so much sense to fully exploit this natural resource that we have in abundance. And Joe Biden wants to kill it. Um, there's no doubt he wants to kill it. We're on the occasion of the uh, first splashdown in 45 years, the uh, SpaceX uh, mission, uh, John Stossel had a great tweet. Two Americans just landed safely after spending two months in space. Eleven years ago, an Obama committee concluded it would take 12 years and cost $26 billion. Elon Musk did it in six for less than a billion. Private competition is always better. It's such a great illustration of what the all the theoretician central planners in D.C. have to say about something like space exploration and then what an entrepreneur like Elon Musk actually does. It's so stunning here in D.C. It's just completely captured by groupthink. If an idea becomes dominant, the momentum of that idea, well, it doesn't matter what kind of rigor it has to go through. And you just do tomorrow what you did today. That's how Washington works. So if someone wants to change how we're doing space transport, no, 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 no. That's not how we did it yesterday. And that's what government will do. What Biden is preparing is proposing is more and more of that. I mean, imagine what kind of innovation we're going to get if we do it fossil fuels and they're going to be in charge of figuring out how we fuel ourselves going forward. Like, what a nightmare. And it's kind of fun to talk about global warming when you walk over and you flip the light switch and the lights come on. People don't realize the plans that we're talking about, that they're seriously considering. You could go over to that light switch and turn it on at some point, and that power is just not there. Unfortunately, reality crashes into these beautiful dreams that some of these people on the left have. You run out of money to pay for things, and then you run out of electric to turn things on. That's just the way it goes. Look at, you mentioned, uh, you, you made an illusion. You're talking about, I heard you talking about Cuba earlier. Hey, down there, people are lucky if they get electric for a couple hours a day. A day. Doesn't seem like a model we should try to replicate. Uh, Adam Brandon is a contributor to the Washington Examiner's Beltway Confidential blog, president and CEO of FreedomWorks. Adam, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. Take care.
podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the show. The uh, Minneapolis Police Department uh, telling Minneapolis residents they should be prepared, quote-unquote, to hand over their phones, wallets, and purses to robbers. MPD reporting a 46% increase in carjackings, a 36% increase in robberies compared to the same time last year. Minneapolis Police Department down more than 100 officers uh, since the George Floyd killing. It's about 10% of the force. Uh, Some expectation they could be down by as much as a third by year's end, including with the budget cutting that's happening. Is uh, that the way to reform a police department, the Minneapolis model, to help us with that question? We're pleased to be joined by Charles Hayes. He's an ex-Dallas police officer turned activist. He's the author of Blue Bias, an ex-cop turned philosopher, examines the learning and resolve necessary to end hidden prejudice in policing. Charles Hayes, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, so uh, what about that uh, Minneapolis, uh, the, how the city council and the community is responding to the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police officers? It seems like uh, they've made Minneapolis less safe as a result. And I don't know who, in whose interest that serves. Well, it doesn't it doesn't sound like it's uh, in the interest of the people of Minneapolis. And so so, uh, you know, in, when you have something like that, like happened uh, in Minneapolis, What's a, a more sensible way to do an examination and uh, implement uh, any necessary reforms in a police department? Well, uh, to, to my my thinking, uh, we haven't married the behavioral sciences with policing near as much as we should have. Mm-hmm. Uh, police officers who who run their limbic system up against conflict uh, repeatedly. It uh, it has a connection to post traumatic stress disorder. Uh, an officer that uh, uh, endures conflict over and over and over can have their amygdala in in their brain enlarge, and they become hypersensitive to uh, insult or having their authority challenged. They they become have a hair trigger response uh, to minor incidents. Uh, but you don't hear much about that, and uh, it, it, in effect, an officer's long-term experience can work against them, and they don't even know what's happening to them unless management uh, keeps a handle on this. It does seem, though, that in terms of just watching all the video from uh, across the country of uh, a massive police response to the, the rioting in various cities, that you have police... Uh, taking a lot, actually, from protesters, not just uh, verbally, but also, you know, the water bottles and the explode, the, the, the basically industrial grade explosives and, and so on and so forth. And um, not so many incidents of, of officers exhibiting that sort of hair trigger. You know, you say a cross word at me or you try to poke me with something and I'm coming over the top with force on you. We haven't seen a lot of that, relatively speaking, to the amount of unrest there's been. That's true. That is true. And the the one incident that uh, sticks out in my mind is the, and these weren't police officers; these were these these uh, uh, federal people. Right. Uh, beating, beating on the Navy man with the, who was just standing there trying to talk to him. Right. I saw that. Uh, but but so so does that? But is that an indication that actually police officers are getting quite a bit of training about how to? Uh, um, sublimate their reaction to the hostility they're receiving. I would sure hope so. 
And and so when you think about uh, what isn't being done in terms of this marriage of the behavioral sciences, where could there be improvements made, sort of gen- generally speaking, without spe- a specific police department in mind necessarily? Well, I mean, any any police department of of any size, I would think, would would try to to uh, uh, connect with uh, university research, uh, and bring bring. Uh, people from the behavioral sciences on board i mean on the department i mean I, i'm sure some have but uh it's uh it's it's long overdue in my my book i, I wrote blue bias to to uh to help prevent officer burnout i mean that happened to me mm-hmm. uh, and uh to to help uh reduce the inf- incidence of uh excessive force and to increase the respect among uh, police officers and the citizens of the community. How, how did how did your burnout manifest itself? Well, I, I began with uh, incredible enthusiasm and, and really enjoyed it, and and finally, I think it was it was domestic dis- disturbance calls that that did it. Uh, I began began to to feel resented resentment for being called on to to address situations that I thought were entirely infantile and juvenile. Mm, mm, and, yeah. And, yeah, I can see that, yeah. And I, did, I didn't have the perspective at the time, and that's what it takes. You have to have perspective to keep from becoming cynical and jaded. And you find a police officer that who's been on the department for years and years and years, I guarantee you there will be some bit of cynicism. I mean, it just, you just can't, you can't see that much uh, uh, of the worst behavior of your fellow man without feeling that way. Well, uh, a professor of criminal justice at uh, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, William Souza, had a piece in City Journal recently where he talked about um, the uh, research in terms of crime management and the need for proactive policing. Whereas in a lot of these cities now where you have prosecutors announcing they're not going to be charging or, or prosecuting people for minor offenses, that's exactly the wrong way to think about it. Uh, in the, the 60s through the 80s, the professor writes, the focus on serious crime and police fail to control it. Uh, put uh, police in a reactive mode. And in, and frankly, it's just rare for police on routine patrol to come up on felonies while they're being committed. It's it's police resolving crimes after they've been committed largely. Uh, he writes that, among others, the, t- the, the proactive tactics that are better at reducing crime generally, including serious crime, managing disorder while patrolling localized crime hotspots, paying attention to minor offenses that are often precursors to serious crimes, Identifying and working with those at the highest risk of violence, helping citizens with problem solving and crime prevention exercises, patrolling on foot and bicycle, partnering with mental health and social service counselors on co-response efforts to embed yourself in the community. It seems like we're, we're turning our back on what we know to be true about uh, effective, proactive policing. Yeah, well, so, I mean, uh, the uh, Ferguson report of March of 2015 is the exact uh, template to for, for to not have community policing i mean if it's online you can you can read it online and it's uh, it shows a community that uh, depended upon financing the, the government on the backs of poor people is what it amounts to well right the whole police as revenue agents i agree with that right, it, right exactly and and the uh, the offenses and the 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 tickets and misdemeanors and summons were, were not based really on making the community safe. They were revenue enhancers. So uh, 
to me, the, the primary job of a police department is to make a community safe, period. If if the officers are out working on petty fines and, and that sort of thing, they are not available when a real emergency arrives. So they, they, they are over-policing and under-policing at the same time. He is Charles Hayes. He's a former Dallas police officer turned activist. He's the author of the book, Blue Bias, an ex-cop turned philosopher examines the learning and resolve necessary to end hidden prejudice in policing. Charles Hayes, thanks so much for joining us. Good luck with the book. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on with Maria Bartiromo yesterday on Fox Business, and he uh, discussed China in some detail, certainly reiterating the call for U.S. companies to reevaluate their supply chains to stop being complicit, say, with slave labor. I'm speaking to you, Phil Knight, at Nike. Uh, In addition to that, uh, he announced sanctions on some Chinese companies who are part of the persecution of Uyghurs in Western China. He also addressed the controversy du jour, the question as to whether or not TikTok be banned in the United States, something President Trump was considering, or whether Microsoft should be allowed to pursue its acquisition of TikTok. Can you really believe that the China surveillance is gone from U.S. operations of TikTok? Maria, I I promise you, the president, when he makes his decision, uh, will make sure that everything we have done drives us as close to zero risk for the American people. That's the mission set that he laid out for all of us when we get we began to evaluate this. Now, several months back, we're we're closing in on a solution. And I I think you'll see the president's announcement shortly. Also, uh, Mike Pompeo addressing Chinese Communist Party influence operations in the United States, including with respect to the election. The Chinese Communist Party, and you you saw this with our closure of the consul in Houston, is running espionage operations inside the United States and attempting deep influence targeting of American business leaders, of American congressmen, of city council members. We saw it happen up to a state senator in Wisconsin. Uh, This is a, a deep effort to conduct influence operations to undermine American democracy and put our nation at risk. Uh, there's a good op-ed in the Wall Street Journal uh, over the weekend by uh, Steve Celine, who's a former uh, race car driver, founder of Celine Inc. He talks about how Chinese officials hijacked his company. Hey, listen up, big tech executives, at least other than Mark Zuckerberg, who are unaware of China stealing IP or otherwise engaged in industrial espionage. Celine writes that um, if uh, trade talks do resume with China, it's more important than ever that any deal protect American companies and their intellectual property from theft by China. My experience doing business in China shows the lengths to which the Chinese government will go to steal American intellectual property. And he uh, recounts his story, which began a few years ago in 2016. He entered a joint venture with the government of Rugao uh, in uh, the Jingsu province, population about a million and a half people, that that uh, community needed expertise to start a motor, an automotive manufacturing company that would create jobs. 
Uh, Celine would bring his experience, design, engineering, and related technologies developed during his 40-year career in the automotive industry, building race cars and high-performance streetcars. His com- uh, contribution is to the deal valued at $800 million. He'd maintain a majority stake in the new company along with his American partners. And Rugal would bring the city, would bring $500 million in capital, $600 million in subsidized loans to fund the sites and operations and get a minority stake. He writes, the deal was a sham. It was a trap designed to secure my intellectual property, then use intimidation tactics and lies to nullify the agreement, to nullify the agreement and seize control. And he goes into the detail of how that proceeded. So it's a real thing. Even if uh, Tim Cook and Jeff Bezos uh, are unaware of it. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation, author of books including Wiki at War and Pub- uh, Private Sector Public Wars. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, great to be with you. So uh, the uh, administration uh, signaling the right uh, tones and taking the right actions, the sanctions that uh, Pompeo announced in regard to China? One of the things we don't do enough is everybody says kind of China bad now. That's great that we all get that. But we need to better educate ourselves on how China has evolved and changed over time as a threat to American economy. Cyber espionage is a good example of that. You know, up to maybe like five or six years ago, essentially China was in the business of stealing economic information primarily over, you know, the internet. They had an army of hackers and they would just commission people to just grab all this stuff. And like 2015 began a shift in their tactics in part because they'd stolen so much. They were actually very competitive us, but economically in a lot of areas, in part because what you could steal wasn't really the most useful stuff anymore. And so they reorganized organize the hackers to really shift and focus on different targets. That didn't mean they stopped doing intellectual property theft and stopped trying to steal stuff from us. And much more now is in the human thing, which is you know, recently why we shut down the consulate in Houston. And stories like you just told about this guy, right? Squeezing people to get information. And But what they're doing on the internet, by the way, remains a threat. And TikTok's a good example. That's really two things. One is just the mass scooping up of all the information they could possibly get so they can pair that with their artificial intelligence and quantum computing to process all this data and split to its advantage. And the other thing is really mapping our systems so they totally understand them. So if they want to go back later and screw with them, steal from them, mess with them, they've got a, a map of how we operate. This is evolving, changing. One of the things I like about the U.S. strategy is the kind of thing that you see Pompeo today is that they're not fighting the last war. In other words, they're staying up with the threat, the new threats that China's developing. When we come back with the Heritage Foundation's Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, should President Trump block or attempt to block Microsoft's acquisition of TikTok? We'll uh, explore that with Jim. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano from the Heritage Foundation. And uh, on the matter of uh, Microsoft and their prospective acquisition of TikTok, President Trump has allowed those talks to continue. Talks of acquisition of TikTok. Do you think, based on uh, the uh, concern that Maria Bartiromo raised in that exchange with Pompeo, that that is the right play? Or should Trump move forward and say TikTok is company uh, non grata in the United States? Well, I think it would be 
difficult. Even I mean, I don't know the. We'd have to go through the legal issues of the authority to do that, and that's that's a separate question. But the ability to ban anybody's access to TikTok inside the United States, you know, the tech guys tell me that would be very difficult. So if they sell this to Microsoft and it comes under Microsoft, I think that American consumers, their private information and information on the internet, would probably be way better off than we are now. I think that's fair. With respect to um, the focus on advising American companies about their supply chains and these uh, stories uh, out, including the one I referenced at the top about Nike being uh, engaged in the use of slave labor for the production of their products. Is the administration going far enough to say you don't want to be in that business with those people? You don't you know, you I should say you don't want to be in business with those people who are committing these atrocities who are repressing people or worse. And so, you know, reconsider, should we be going further than that with companies like Nike? So I'd say there's kind of two parts to that. Is the U.S. government doing a lot more in really trying to understand the coercive and malicious behavior of Chinese economic entities and making them available to knowledgeable the private sector? Absolutely, there's tons of that stuff going on. Is the effort as tightly coordinated and integrated as everybody know everything the way they should? Probably not. But we're lightning years ahead of where we were four years ago. But the other thing is, is there's a huge role here for civil society. China is opaque, but it is not a black box. Lots of people are collecting a lot of information on China, Some, a lot of it very, very enlightening. So I think there's a transparency strategy here from both the civil society side and the U.S. government and other governments. It's just the more we bring to light the information about Chinese course of malicious activity, the more companies will have to deal with that, the more they have to respond to their shareholders, the more that they'll, they'll recognize the threats to their own company, the more that they'll have to respond to their customers. So I, do I think there's a lot more that can be done? Uh, absolutely. Um, but again, I would say, look at where we were four years ago in terms of people understanding the Chinese activity and where we are today. And you know, I think we are on the right path. You know what? I don't think we can move down that path fast enough. Yeah, I mean, uh, the announcement that uh, Hong Kong elections have been postponed for a year. Um, it, it's obvious look, that the Chinese have gotten more aggressive. And, and if you look at it again from kind of Xi's perspective, he's the one that really made the decision in the last 10 years to kind of take the curtain off and really reveal the really ambitious decisions and say, we have now as China, we've accumulated all this power and authority we need to go out and use it. For him to, to back down from that strategy essentially would be a tremendous loss of face and, and, and I think would really shake up his authorities. But what's interesting about the Chinese, where are they really stepping out? They're stepping out on the, those that are the weakest. So they go after Hong Kong because Hong Kong can't really effectively fight back. It is very much bullying tactics. Um, with respect to China, though, uh, and those statements, go back to Pompeo's statement about influence operations in the United States. Do we see them taking a particular interest in the presidential outcome? Yeah. So there's both sides there. One is there more is there foreign activity in the United States? Absolutely. Are we in much better shape to respond and deal with the most malicious and dangerous activity than we were in 2016? Absolutely. I mean, the federal government spends a lot of time at looking at foreign not just influence operation, but actually efforts to kind of shift votes and stuff like that. So, and, and, and they actually get a lot of cooperation from big tech on this. Here's the challenge, though, I think, with, is how influential are foreign influence operations? Because especially when you see you know, people in this country essentially saying the same things as China and Russia and everything else, how much, how much are they really moving the needle? 
I, I think our domestic discord drives the conversation a lot more. I think where the government, where uh, the national security folks, law enforcement get much, much more concerned is influence operations that are stoking the fires at the real radical fringe on, on the left and, you know, on the right. Um, you know, when, when violence becomes normal, and we've seen this in, in organized movements all over the world, all through history, there's always a fringe element that says, that's not enough. When you have mainstream kind of sense of, hey, you're kind of tamping that down, you're, now you're starting to give us a bad name. There's always people that think we need to drive that a little further. If you remember, for example, back in the 70s, when uh, the Palestinian Authority was using terrorism, and then Arafat ended in talks with Sadat in Egypt, there were people that thought, well, the PLA is just too moderate. And, there, and there were, so there were splinter groups that were trying to be even more violent. And I, I do think that is something that we have to give a second thought to. Once violence becomes normalized, the notion that there are going to be splinter groups that think that, not to pick on anybody, but BLM and Antifa, they're just too mainstream. That's when you have to start worrying about you know, people doing really horrific things. And the president's decision to uh, bring 6,400 troops home from Germany and reassign another 5,600. Uh, is this uh, his last gift to Putin, as CNN breathlessly characterized it, or is this, uh, well, one, fulfilling a promise, and two, attaching consequences uh, to Germany's failure to uh, pay their fair share? Well, I don't think either of those things are true. I don't think this is anything about Putin, and, and, and I don't really think it impacts punishing Germany in any way. This is the administration trying to figure out how do we actually get better conventional insurance with the forces that we have. I think part of this makes sense. The Air Force moves um, probably make sense from a lot of different perspectives. Uh, better places, you can put those planes more effectively, cost-effectively use them, make them safer, uh, really expand the areas that NATO can influence. So the Air Force decision, I'm kind of okay with. Um, I think that the idea of having a rotational force that can come back to Europe and other places, that, that's a good idea. Do, I, I don't think this is the right unit to move. And, and, if, and if we were going to move operational forces, we should actually be moving them forward, principally in Poland. So, so parts of this decision, I think, are, are fine. Parts of it, I, I don't think, are the, the best move. Um, but you know what? These are actually the kind of debate strategists have. But it's not. Everybody's assigning all these political motives to this, which I just don't think they're there. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullen Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thank you. Thank you. I am the modern man. Secret, secret, I've got a secret. Who hides behind a mask. Secret, secret, I've got a secret. So no one else can see. Secret, secret, I've got a secret. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the show and uh, close it out today. Wall Street Journal uh, analysis over the weekend looking at crime stats from the nation's 50 largest cities, finds that uh, reported homicides up 24% so far this year. Shootings, uh, gun violence also increasing. In uh, Washington, D.C., like so many major cities, uh, 
murders are outpacing murders from last year, even during a period of significant lockdown for a significant portion of the first seven months of the year. But who are the real problems in D.C.? Where do police need to focus their resources, according to the politicians that are certainly dispatching them, as well as the lives of other snitches? Oh, you know, the kids, and I do mean kids, outside an abortion mill in D.C., writing uh, with chalk on the sidewalks. Uh, these are the pre-born Black Lives Matter protesters, or prayer warriors, really, is probably more accurate. And here's how it went down. I mean, there's literally teenagers, all they're doing, wearing T-shirts, standing outside an abortion clinic on public property, and they're going to write pre-born Black Lives Matter. And this happens. We're not going to get that far. What do you write? Wait, what do you write? This is our constitutional right. We do this every Saturday. I need to tell you now that if you continue talking, you're going to be placed under arrest for defacing property. We do this every Saturday. Okay, I've given you your warning. You understand that, right? If you continue talking, you're going to be placed under arrest. Okay. You have a one, two, these two people. You know they do this every Saturday, right? Every Saturday. Putting them in cuffs. I majored in political science. This is public property. Every Saturday, people are here. Talking. This is government censorship. And arresting them because they are simply putting free blacks, freeborn lives matter. You gotta be joking. You gotta be absolutely joking that you would take young people that are simply putting on a sidewalk chalk that they are standing for preborn black lives. And I know what uh, those who would uh, side with the police on this would say, though, well, defacing public property, public property. It's different than Black Lives Matter murals uh, in front of Trump Tower or elsewhere where they got a permit. They were sanctioned by the government. Well, it's not different than the prosecution, uh, not the the, uh, culture of non-prosecution in big cities where, uh, depending on the message and the messenger, you are allowed to deface public property with impunity. Not a lot of arrests for tagging buildings, streets, and I'm not talking about with chalk around the country. That's one thing. The other thing is the idea of permitting, permitting for chalk outside a abortion mill for a group of kids with the pro-life with the, the pro-life message of preborn Black Lives Matter. You know, that the idea you need state state sanction and the state will sanction a Black Lives Matter mural, but it will not sanction that. So, again, that's viewpoint discrimination and it's violative of the First Amendment if you really wanted to play this out in terms of a legal argument. But it's more much more a cultural one, isn't it? And it's uh, something to think about. Thank you for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.